<laughs> okay. Uh, the plan is as follows. Um, I'm going to talk to you about uh, meaning structures, um, meaning structures as they uh, pertain to management research. Um, this is actually a lot of work that's being developed in uh, cultural sociology, but recent work in category theory is bringing this into management, and I'm going to jump on that train in a big way and try and persuade you that it's a, a wonderful thing to do. Um, and then I'm also going to talk a little bit about how this is a big data problem. Uh, you wouldn't normally necessarily put culture and big data in the same sentence, but you'll see. Um, and then I'll show you uh, in detail some of these ideas as uh, they're being applied to uh, a project that I'm working on, uh, as well as, um, if I have any time at the end, uh, a new project, um, and then just some discussions about broader applications. So if we're okay with that, we'll jump right in. Okay, so I just want to start off with a proposition. The proposition is that how we categorize things matters, um, but it's not always entirely clear how we do it, who does it, or why we do it. Um, so if we think about category theory, it really does go all the way back to Aristotle. Aristotle, who was suggesting that you have the necessary and sufficient conditions of features that make up a category, I uh, had the example here, the Oxford English Dictionary, defining a chair. It must have, uh, what do they say, a separate seat with one person, typically with a back and four legs. So if any of those are violated, the object that you're trying to classify is not a chair, according to this sort of abstract definition. And so um, Wittgenstein came around in the 50s, and he suggested that perhaps, you know, in, in practice, it wasn't quite uh, the case. People don't really necessarily approach categorizing objects in their world through this formal abstract definition, but rather, as he said, they, they, they make sense of things through family resemblances. So you know, he was talking a lot about games in his definition of you know, the, the Olympic games and board games. You know, they don't adhere to uh, what Aristotle was saying, but they, they share a number of features. And so he, he talked about family resemblances as a way to make sense of categories and classifying things. And so Elizabeth Roche uh, came along in the 70s. She's a cognitive psychologist at Berkeley. And she suggested that the family resemblances idea was really, really good, but it lacked something. What it lacked was uh, what she called a prototype, which is to say uh, not every member of a category uh, is equally typical, uh, whereas the most typical thing in a category is what she calls the prototype. I'll give you an example of what I mean. If you think about birds, we have a robin on the left and a penguin on the right. The penguin's pretty cute, but the penguin doesn't fly. Now, if you think about the category of birds, it's pretty important that it flies. Uh, even though that's not a feature, necessarily, um, in the Aristotelian sense, but it is important to the definition of birds. So then, when we think about birds in practice, most of us will actually compare what we're trying to classify to the prototype, as in the robin here is more of a prototype. It's more central to the, the definition of a category than a penguin is. Uh, so that, that's the big idea. Um, and so it's really important to just set this aside. This is great theory that I'm going to build off of. Now, economic sociology has built on this in a really big way um, in the last 20 years. 
you know, in suggesting that um, categories really limit uh, our cognitive focus. So if you think about when you're a firm, you don't consider all firms equally the same. You consider a set of rivals within your industry. And so there's been a fair amount of work done in strategy around this, uh, and indeed reputation work. Um, but it's not just firms, you know, it's also consumers. To, to, to think about a likeness of something, to, to compare and contrast products and value and prices, it's critically important that we come up with this cognitive set of what is like product A. And so economists have done a lot of really wonderful work on this, um, but the economic sociologists are trying to come at this from a slightly different angle, which is to say, before these things get established, they are subject to, to this categorization process. After they become somewhat established, you know, then uh, economics becomes a really wonderful way of explaining uh, behavior and activity, but in the early days, so is the proposition from economic sociology, it's, it's this cognitive categorizing that becomes really important. And going back to my initial proposition, it's not necessarily, or in the early days, entirely clear why or how things get categorized together. And so, uh, just to move on from this, um, legitimacy is, is basically what the economic sociologists are getting at, which is to say, if you're a firm, if you're going to be counted within a market, you need to be considered legitimate. And um, if we think about a stable market, um, analysts, <coughs> are in that space. So here I have uh, Google. Uh, we have, how many analysts do we have covering them? Um, okay, this wasn't the right image. But the point being, <laughs> we all know that uh, analysts cover a particular company. The company is considered within you know, a set of formal categories like um, the various codes that uh, regulators apply. But you also think based on a set number of um, analysts who cover tech, if they cover you as Google and they also cover the other tech companies, you know, that's, that's a stable market environment. Um, but again, going back to my point from the previous slide, it's not entirely clear how that comes together in the first place. And if we think about um, this as a problem of collective expectations, then in the early days, we're really dealing with unstructured data. We don't have indices or, or clear indicators or codes. Uh, and so as analysts, how do we study this stuff? And so what I'm going to be presenting to you today is that this can actually be seen as a problem of cognition and methodologically through text analysis. Of course, in order to do this, uh, we do need a social theory of language. Um, and this is where meaning structures come in. So I mentioned the, at the very beginning, meaning structures, um, it's a set of work coming out of um, cultural sociology that's basically suggesting that collective expectations are effectively meaning and they are structured uh, within collectives. And so when we think about uh, belief systems of, of markets, uh, we have a lot of wonderful work coming out that's talking about sense-making. And sense-making, uh, the outcome of sense-making is meaning and indeed a meaning structure. And uh, so I'm gonna jump off that work and say, you know, product markets uh, are really uh, important, uh, or have two important components that are effectively a meaning structure. And you can see this framework here, it talks about how products are conceptual systems. 
where in, you know, producers' heads, they have a particular cognitive idea of what the product is, but you know, consumers have to have that as a similar one as well, and they have to be sufficiently uh, overlapping. And so this is coming out of a lot of um, Joe Porak's work, if people are familiar. He's a uh, fellow at the Center for Corporate Reputation. Um, this uh, can be thought of, you know, um, with reputation as well. So you can think about a meaning structure uh, of a stable market. Uh, at the very bottom, we have um, a product ontology, which is to say the categorization of what is it. Uh, and then once that stabilizes, then we can have boundary beliefs of who's in, who's out, and we can have industry recipes, which is to say, you know, strategists don't come up with uh, new strategies out of midair. They, they follow one another. They watch what's coming down the pipe. Um, and so these industry recipes become really important uh, for strategy. And at the very top of that, once you have the stable space, then you can have reputational rankings. Then you can have the best firm in this space. And so you can't have the space, or you can't say that if you don't have the space. And so this is where, when we think about this framework, these belief systems really do layer on top of one another. You know, the lower order beliefs uh, create the conditions that support the higher order beliefs, and the higher order beliefs put pressure on the lower order beliefs, which really stabilizes them. And so, with that in mind, um, we can think about how cultural and institutional meanings are linked to social structure. Uh, this diagram right here uh, is actually work that was done by a cultural sociologist named John Moore, um, who was looking at the way poverty was classified in New York City uh, around the turn of the century. Um, and indeed, the categorization process of what it means to be poor was very much linked to what people agreed um, the processes of dealing with it were. So it's actually kind of backwards when you think about how categorization has a lot to do with the practicalities of how you deal with something. And so the paper, it was a really fascinating paper, showed that practices changed uh, around 19, post-World well, post War I. And so when the practices changed in terms of how we deal with poverty, the categories then changed in terms of what it means to be poor. You know, some of these things uh, are still around today when you talk about homeless, needy, but fallen. And you can think about here, the treatment for fallen was sending somebody to an asylum. You know, that was the practice. This is a, a diagram called a Galois lattice that really links uh, practices of treatment to the categorization. And so I think it's pretty exciting, um, that work that's going on, but I'm ultimately uh, a, a strategy person. Uh, and so go, just coming back to product markets for a second, um, you know, all of the work that's been done on the technology lifecycle and strategy um, kind of ignored cognition for a long time. Um, but in the late um, 2000s, uh, some scholars, Sarah Kaplan and Mary Tripps in particular, started to revisit uh, this idea. Before I go on, is everybody familiar with the technology life cycle? You just raise your hands. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> so when we think about it as an evolutionary process, uh, this point of, of converging upon dominant design, um, has been explained through economies of scale and selecting a particular design. Um, but the cognitive view suggests that it's not so cut and dry. It's actually, it has a lot to do with different actors interacting and there's this process of trying to figure out what is the product. So when we think about um, the 
Apple Watch that's about to come out in two months. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that went on for like two or three years. You know, which were the firms that were going to be included in this market? What was the product going to look like? How much was it going to cost? You know, all of these, these really important issues uh, were being speculated through rumor and um, Apple makes an announcement and suddenly within you know, a month we suddenly have two or three other competitors uh, offering products and we're in this process now of everybody trying to figure out what it is. And so if we go back to this diagram right here, as this market is getting constructed, um, we don't have an idea in terms of what the best smartwatches out there yet because we don't have these lower order cognitive beliefs yet. Um, so that's where it becomes really important when we think about uh, strategy. Um, but I'm going to tell you about why this is a really difficult empirical problem. <laughs> so I've presented you the theory, uh, but I just want to take a second and suggest that the way that we do um, text analysis or content analysis is mostly through frequency counting, which ignores some of the fundamental ideas of meaning in the sense of categories. Uh, if, you're, if you're just counting frequency of words, we're missing out on why those words connect. Um, it's pretty crude. So when we think about natural language processing um, as a way to potentially get over this, um, this is where we turn to computational linguistics. So what I've done here uh, is I've just taken a sentence and I've run it through a computational linguistics uh, Parser, it's a program that's able to go through and it's able to establish that every word has a linguistic role. And so you think about um, hog as a proper noun, we think about 13th century as an adjective, each word uh, is given a part of speech. And the really important thing about this that I really want to get across here is that although this is relatively unstructured data, from a linguistic standpoint it is structured. And so that's where it becomes really exciting how we can look at texts as being loosely structured. Um, and indeed, we can think about how there are concepts within this text. And then we can take these concepts and extract them and form networks. And of course, the wonderful thing about networks is that they're structures uh, that we can measure and we can do all sorts of wonderful things. Social network analysis has pushed things along in a big way. Uh, and we, we can take some of these, uh, these techniques and apply them to uh, concept networks or text networks. Now, one problem with all of this, uh, and this is what keep, keeps me up at night, unfortunately, and that has to do with the uh, computational complexity. Now, very few people here are computer scientists, um, but I just want to present something to you and suggest that the way that algorithms uh, are written um, really do limit our ability to do any sort of big data analysis. And this is missing from a lot of the conversation about big data. Uh, and that is, when you think about how one article that you know, I'm dealing with in my project has 400, 400 words. 100,000 articles has approximately 40 million words. I'm dealing with 350,000 articles. And so if you think about, um, if we were just counting words individually, that's a linear problem. And so uh, if you th when we scale up um, the numbers of articles or words that we're dealing with, um, whether it's uh, a linear problem or a cubic problem in the sense that if things are interrelated, uh, then as 
our, uh, the number of units that we're processing goes up, our processing time goes through the roof. And just to, to put this in perspective to you, for you, um, in May, I was trying to run an algorithm doing some of the network processing that I showed you. Um, I did the calculation. It would have taken 143 days to do one calculation through this algorithm. And so that's a big problem. You know, I have a powerful machine up in the Center for Corporate Reputation. Um, but in order to deal with this, um, you know, I could have asked for a faster machine, although it would have you know, probably brought it down to 100 days. <laughs> I could have worked on writing a better algorithm, but you know, I have a computer science undergrad. My DPhil is at the business school, so I'm not really interested in investing that much time in writing better algorithms. And so the way that I was able to deal with this problem was to break it up into two sub-problems. So uh, this is something that the big data people are talking about with Hadoop, where you take a problem and you paralyze it, you break it up into sub-problems, and then you stitch it back together, which is this process of reduce. So with that in mind, um, I want to get into the project now. So I'm, I'm dealing with um, the MP expenses scandal. Um, my co-authors are Joe Porak, Jim Wade, uh, John Bundy, and Scott Graffin. Um, and we're looking at this wonderful case of the 2009 British MP expenses scandal. Um, how many people here are familiar with this scandal? Okay, great. So I don't have to talk too much about it, but uh, the background. But I will say that there was this wonderful case uh, of uh, a leak um, that occurred um, where five years of um, expenses for all of the MPs in Parliament uh, were sent to a newspaper on a, uh, on a CD. They were the scans of all of their expenses signed off. Uh, and this was uh, specifically focused on their second home claims. Um, for most MPs who live outside of London, uh, they, through this program, were allowed to claim for a house in London and a house in their constituency. And the rules for how this uh, was established um, were, to say the least, they were fuzzy, <laughs> uh, to be kind. Um, so there was this tidal wave of public fury once it was uh, actually released, uh, once the expenses were actually released and the public were able to see what uh, MPs were claiming for. Um, the Prime Minister called it the biggest parliamentary scandal for two centuries um, and appointed Sir Thomas Legg to uh, launch a public inquiry into investigating uh, these MPs. So this is the, the scandal timeline. Um, you can see in May 2005, uh, Labour won the election. Um, between 2005 and 2009, um, there was uh, awareness and activity that perhaps uh, this information should be made public. Uh, the Freedom of Information Act uh, came in around that time. A journalist named Heather Brook um, started filing freedom of information requests um, and had to fight quite a legal battle. Um, and then in May of 2009, there was this shock, exogenous moment of somebody, some civil servant sent or shopped around this disk that had all of the MPs' expenses, the scans, the PDFs, and most of the newspapers actually declined it because they thought it was either not true or stolen or whatever. But the Telegraph uh, purchased it for, I believe it was 150,000 pounds, and proceeded to write articles uh, exposing MPs and their, um, their expenses. Uh, and then so 
But, uh, that happened on May 8th, 2009. Um, on May 19th, uh, a public inquiry was launched. Uh, February of 2010, the public inquiry um, uh, report was released, and then there was an election on the following um, May. And so this is a wonderful natural experiment because we have a performance outcome, um, which is whether MPs were reelected or forced to resign. And so we can look at this time ordering. Uh, it's really um, a nice natural experiment that gets us to, or allows us to ask the question of, do meaning structures have a causal impact? And so this is based on a prior study that the team did before I joined them. Um, in that study, they were really interested in looking at status and the role of status. And the name of the paper was um, uh, Falls from Grace. Uh, and in there, you know, they had appreciated that there had been all of this wonderful work done on the positive effects of status, but you know, there were also some negative uh, aspects of status uh, that were under-explored uh, in, in research. And so, you know, if you think about um, some of the hazards that come with high status, uh, look at Roman emperors, uh, some of the highest status uh, people uh, in their time, and yet how many of them died of natural causes in this time period? Uh, one. And so in this study, they had looked at um, opportunism and targeting uh, as the mechanisms that, that underlie um, the hazards of high status. And so I'm not going to get too much into the detail. It's a wonderful paper. It's an ASQ released last year. Um, but I will say, because we are carrying some things through to the, the current study, is that uh, the way that they measured status was they looked at uh, the honor system in the UK. So if you have pre-nominal honors or if you have post-nominal honors, um, if you are given pre-nominal honors, it's actually considered to be a higher sort of category. If you're a sir, a lady, a dame, um, that's, that's high status within the British aristocracy. But then if you have post-nominal honors, um, like an OBE, uh, then it's, it's slightly lower. And indeed, they, they give the lower status to Americans even. <laughs> Not Canadians, but Americans. <laughs> um, and so when you think about the scandal, uh, I just want to show you this, this description, because I think it's really amazing. 54% of MPs in the inquiry were asked to pay back money. Uh, the mean amount was uh, 1,800 pounds. 14% um, of MPs resigned during the scandal period. Um, and then 35% of MPs turned over ultimately with this election. Um, amongst those MPs that were, were forced out um, was the Speaker of the House, uh, Michael Martin. The last time a Speaker was uh, forced to resign was 75 years ago. This doesn't happen very often. Um, and uh, within this, 6.5% uh, of MPs with honors were pushed to turn over. And so when we look at this chart right here, um, this is the weeks um, of the scandal. In week zero, um, you had one person, or in the first week, you had one person resign. And then you can see the, the periods of these resignations, and they, they roughly match up to, you know, this is when the initial furor happened, and then um, MPs uh, were out of session for the summer, and then uh, when the, the inquiry started uh, interviewing MPs in private, uh, a number of them at that point just said, enough of this, I'm resigning. And then finally, this roughly matches up to uh, when the inquiry uh, was released to the public. And finally, the election was around here. And so 
Um, this breaks uh, our, our scandal period down into these periods where we have uh, this election, we have the disclosure, and then we have another election. And so we can derive some wonderful data from this. And indeed, in the previous study, uh, what they were able to show was that if you had no honors at all, it didn't matter how much money the inquiry asked you to pay back. Your uh, likelihood of turning over was relatively the same. But if you were high status, then at lower percentiles of repayment, then your status actually was a buffer in terms of your uh, likelihood of turning over. You can see here that low status uh, has a bit higher chance, and then indeed the no status is about flat. We mean both. And are you not a little concerned that this was a really big swing election and therefore some of these people might have just been gone simply because they were Labour MPs yeah. that were on the way out anyway? So for each MP, we collected about 50 different variables, including information about their constituency, and we controlled for issues like this. Or at least they did. This is the results from their, the project before me. But I w what I want to focus your attention to is that at high levels of repayment, then status actually became somewhat of a, a burden. And so the really big unanswered question in their paper was, why? And potentially, is it because of the media? How was the media able to transform um, your s status as being a good thing or a bad thing relative to um, how much money you were asked to pay back? And so in, in that paper, they found that there was little evidence of opportunism, um, as I just described, uh, status being a buffer, then a burden, this transformation. Uh, and they basically determined that there was a targeting going on. There was a status-based targeting, which you know, makes a lot of sense uh, you know, if you think about the tallest poppy effect or comeuppance. Uh, you know. um, and so the media um, was really important, and it, it warranted uh, further coverage. It wasn't a particularly rational process in the sense that those who were uh, those who claimed the most amount of money and were asked to pay the most amount of money back were not punished. Um, and so it's a sense-making problem. Uh, and this is where what I was talking about before in terms of meaning structures, uh, what we were predicting or hypothesizing in, in what's actually happening here is that the meaning structure that the media created around the scandal embedded certain MPs and then if you were really embedded in that categorization of what it meant to be a bad MP then you were going to be subject to uh, more uh, pressure to resign. And so that was the thing that we were really excited about early on but as I alluded to with um, what I was talking about with big data, it's really not easy to, to study this, to get into this, because you, you can't just count the number of articles that, that um, certain MPs have about them. You can't really just count the number of words, because it doesn't really tell you about this meaning structure that's being created or this categorization process that's happening around certain MPs. And so we turn to sociology in the way that they are dealing with scandal. And uh, R.E. Audit is uh, a scholar who has talked about how scandals are only really activated when you have this, these transgressions that are made public through uh, media. You know, publicity, as he says, no publicity, no scandal. 
Um, and indeed, a um, scholar at uh, Cambridge, John Thompson, talks about how scandals are characterized by a drama of concealment and disclosure. And so when we think about the role of the media, it makes the public private. It's a vehicle for this disruption, this disruptive publicity. But really important for our project here, it creates this common knowledge um, and imposes the transgression. So this is where we can think about the differences between how the media reports on things and how the media potentially shapes things. Uh, and the shaping is really where this meaning comes in, that they provide this meaning by shaping a meaning structure, basically. Uh, and so when we think about the contamination effects or the purification effects of that, that likelihood graph I showed you, um, the hope was that maybe we can actually start to uncover this. And so when we need to account for meaning, uh, we thought about how we could apply this concept networks approach uh, to getting at frames and framing. Uh, and one of the great things, or I should say a few of the great things about concept networks is that they let us get at centrality an idea of something that's salient. And if you think about a concept network, it's not the same as a frequency table in the sense that stories are networks. They have central components. I, I talked to you earlier about prototypes and categories. That's a network logic. The fact that you have some um, members, some objects of a category that are more centrally uh, prototypes than others, that's, that's about centrality. And so the other neat thing about concept networks um, and the natural language processing that I'll talk about a little bit later is that we can get at sentiment in a slightly uh, better way. And we can start to look at frames as actually being uh, structures within uh, concept networks. And then we can look at the embeddedness of MPs uh, and what they tend to be linked together with. And so um, the research questions that we're really dealing with here are, how did the, the media attention shape the fates of MPs? So in terms of the MPs turning over, what are the mechanisms of the reporting and shaping? And beyond status, why were certain MPs uh, and their expenses subject to this? And so the, the theoretical framing that I offered you up front was that this is a categorization process. That it's a categorization process that has something to do with constructing a category of what bad MPs were. And we found that just status alone was not necessarily the basis of this. Neither was the amount of money that you were asked to claim back. So when we think about uh, the problem in front of us, we have 335,000 um, news articles <laughs> that we were dealing with. Um, it's a big problem. Uh, a standard content analysis would probably look something like this, you know, where we would try and come up with dictionaries of words and then um, find them, how they appear relative to, to one another in certain proportions. Um, the, a network text analysis looks something like this. Um, the really nice thing about uh, network text analysis is it, it is a social theory of language. When words appear commonly together, when you think about Saeed Business School, um, those three words consist of something that's really understood within a particular cultural context, yet we don't often use all three words when mentioning the name of this place. And so that's a perfect example of why frequency is somewhat misleading, that you have to actually take into account how words appear together to form meaningful units. And indeed, Saeed Business School is 
what, what are we on the rankings now in the FT? Um, but anyways, the point being, if you hear that statement, Said Business School and FT rankings, there is an important link between them. Um, and so when we think about network text analysis, it's, it's this kind of uh, meaning that we're really trying to get at. And so the, the critical part of a network text analysis, and this is the hardest part beyond the, the big data complexity, is automatically trying to identify what concepts are, because concepts become our, our nodes. And uh, in our project, we're, we're looking to linguistics to help us get at that. And uh, when we think about um, languages, particularly English, um, we think about how parts of speech can actually be clustered based on um, certain patterns. And this is where we get noun phrases. And so Oxford University, even though it's two nouns, is a concept. It's a noun phrase, as they would say in linguistics, because it together constitutes um, a unit of language. And so this is where, if we look at a sentence, uh, Oxford University is located in England. Uh, a linguistics analysis would show you this. This is a, a parse tree. Um, all you have to know from this tree is that you can see how the unit is uh, really um, isolated there. And so we have software that allows us to identify what the noun phrases are just based on this linguistics. Now, the problem with this is that it's a, yeah, question. So frequencies, I'm not dismissing them entirely, uh, but I am saying that we need to step away from them a little bit. Um, if, I can talk to you offline in terms of how linguistics gets at this, but I can tell you just very quickly, it uses Markov chain models uh, with uh, language. Uh, so you're able, you know, all of the uh, parts of speech. Oops. Yeah, so I get links, you know, off the earth is So when you see... So the, this, is, this is a fundamental question in natural language processing. And natural language processing really came about fr uh, from the need to do speech recognition. Um, if, you ever heard, if you've ever heard the, uh, the old uh, speech recognition algorithms, if you asked it, you know, or if you tried to dictate elephant shoes, it might confuse that with I love you, or Jimi Hendrix, kiss the sky. <laughs> and, one of the, um, the ways that they, they approached this problem was by investigating the probability of certain words appearing next to one another, and that's where the Markov chain comes in, but it's probably a little bit technical. Yeah? Question? Um, again, I don't want to get too much into the details, but modern language models will use one, two, and three together and do joint probabilities um, using a Bayesian. Okay, um, <laughs> the linguistics analysis is before the network. So it's 
extracting, the language models are built into the parsers. I'm using a Stanford parser. It's a black box. It's Fine. wonderful. Okay, so uh, So I get noun phrases. I feed in 300,000 texts. I get a list of noun phrases, what sentences they're in. That's the gist of it. Uh, but the problem is, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, we're trying to deal with concepts that are culturally uh, the same. We're looking for sameness. And so if you think about uh, the names of MPs, this is where you have a tremendous disambiguation problem. And I don't know if people can see the graph here, but I've just laid out all of the variations on David Cameron's name. These are the noun phrases that were extracted using the Stanford parser. Uh, David Cameron, being the most obvious one, you know, has about 55,600 mentions in this, this scandal period. But then you have Mr. Cameron. Then you have just Cameron. Then you have Tory leader David Cameron. Now these are, these are extracted automatically using the linguistics toolkit. But we then, unfortunately, need to find a way to link all of these together. So um, for all of the MPs, we came up with a heuristic um, that uh, basically looked for the last name and other details, because we have a database of these MPs. We've collected for all of 644 MPs 50 different variables. And so we know what party they're from. We know whether they're male or female. And so we're able to use this information to collapse all of these into a dictionary for that concept. Yes. It was like an incredibly stupid question. And it no stupid questions. The Prime Minister, I'm sure that especially in, in one or the other tabloid, there were some more poetic, less flattering references than just Mr. Cameron, right? Would that be picked up as well? Yes. Because uh, the linguistic analysis is looking for the parts of speech within the language models, it's then identifying just what the noun phrases are based on their linguistic function. Then, by lo us looking for all noun phrases that contain the word Cameron, we pick up those. Now, there's going to be some noise. We're going to miss some. How long is the word Cameron? So if, if this were like the Donald Trump Daily, and yeah. you were to search for Obama, and it says the guy from Kia, that would get picked up as well? Or it wouldn't so, it would be? So, it would be. Yes. Donald Trump, just an example. So, it would be picked up as a noun phrase, but whether or not we would effectively be capturing it within our dictionary, unless we do a reading and we know that, then it would miss it, uh, which is one of the downsides of the method. Yes? Um, why would I not just be able to search for Cameron in this case, for example? Because every time that's Cameron, I, because all of them have Cameron in it, right? Why do we need to kind of search all things together? So once we extract the noun phrases, it's about trying to, within a sentence, rem remove all of the noun phrases and partition. And then after we do that, then we're trying to collapse them down into one. And so this is where um, it gives us the ability to, through our qualitative knowledge, to collapse, you know, like your example, uh, <laughs> you know, with, with Gordon Brown. When the, during this particular period, we know he was prime minister during this period. So when they're talking about prime minister, um, we can collapse that into the Gordon Brown dictionary. Um, so this is just what, I, what I'm trying to show you here is that our approach is inductive in that we are not so concerned initially with determining all of the variations. We're just trying to find the noun phrases. Then we uh, create a dictionary which is more deductive and, and collapse it down. And so uh, I explained to you that we have this heuristic um, and 
I'm just paying attention to time here. So the way that we uh, form the network uh, is we extract these noun phrases. If they appear in the same sentence, then we form uh, network ties between these nodes. If the same concept appears in multiple sentences, it becomes a bridge across two different networks. And so uh, the other neat thing we're able to do is have a two-mode network in the sense that uh, we know MPs' names are a special type of uh, node, so we actually have MPs and other concepts. Now that's important for what I'm going to describe later. But I um, just want to show you here that sentence. This is the process. We extract the uh, parts of speech, then we find the noun phrases. The noun phrases then form, based on appearing together, form a network. So it's pretty straightforward, I hope. Black boxing all of that stuff on language models and Markov chains. Um, <laughs> this is the immediate uh, artifact of this type of analysis. Uh, this is one sentence. It's just a clique of, of nodes based on how they appear within a sentence. And linguistics, of course, talks about how a sentence is a uh, is a basic unit of thought, and so it is that, that natural boundary. And so if things are starting to appear in sentences together a lot, that's, that's really important for constructing a meaning structure. Tabo. So an article sort of summarizes what happens, but then takes a side and says, defends, you know, David Cameron or whoever. Um, can you capture that? So the, the affect of the defense would actually come in the sentiment in sentences. Uh, and the sentiment is often contained within verb phrases uh, and adjectives. So what's the unit or level analysis? Is it sentences? Sentences. So it's not articles. So you don't, you don't care what the sen general sentiment of, say, the telegraph speech was. It's, it's more all articles are the same. Yeah, so we, we'll sample a week of all articles. Okay. And uh, I've had to build um, a system to actually do a lot of this querying. Um, and uh, I'm able to run a query that would say, give me all articles from the Telegraph newspaper between May 9th and May 20th uh, that have to do with a certain number of MPs. And then that sample we would then just compile together into a network and measure the, the structure. Yes? I just want to make sure I have everything what's going on. So you take massive text, all articles, stitch them all together, Cut that, cut that into sentences using some magical sentence parser. Cut, cut each of those sentences into noun phrases. Okay, you're then, you're then, you then, and then you fully connect all noun phrases within the same sentence. Yes. To make, to make, to make a clique, and then, and then push this all together, and then get a big weighted network at the end. Yes. Okay. Good. Um, and by, <laughs> and by two modes, you mean by parser. I do. Um, just, just, just making sure there wasn't some extra thing that. I yes. Know. No. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure I understood exactly what was going on. Yes. Cool. Okay. And thank you for <laughs> offering that extra Sorry, part. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure I understood. <laughs> okay. I give the example of one sentence. Uh, if noun phrases are appearing across many sentences together, then the weight, the edge, uh, the tie increases. So if they appear once, the weight equals one. If they appear twice, it increments and so on. So that's the basis of the method. Uh, I mentioned uh, the sentiment analysis. Um, 
The same tool uh, does what's called deep learning sentiment analysis. Again, it's somewhat of a black box, but what you have to understand is uh, it's using linguistic analysis to do a sentiment, uh, to assign a sentiment score for a sentence. So if you think about the example, Tim is neither that funny nor super interesting. If we were to run it through the, the standard uh, content analysis software, um, LUIC, uh, it would count the words funny, super, and interesting, and it would actually assign that sentence uh, a positivity score of three. But the Stanford kit is able to um, get in there and look at some of these um, dependencies and actually find that it's, it's a, a negative sentence, but not super negative. <laughs> so it's not perfect. <laughs> so I, that's what I wonder about sarcasm yeah. because a lot of media, I mean, that's sort of how they tell the story is, is Tim is quote funny. Yeah. Um, so, but it, can't, it can't capture it. Um, it's getting better. Um, but no, it can't capture sarcasm to the fullest extent. But the other thing that, that I'm, I'm trying to get at here is that sarcasm is not the main uh, focus or the main frame that's being brought forth within the media. It may appear kind of in the fringes, but uh, we're, talk we're trying to get at this idea of social knowledge. And social knowledge is kind of the average uh, of what all the newspapers are, are kind of saying. That if you're going to critique something, you have to bring whatever it is up first. And then my whole proposition to you today is that within a categorization process, you need a, a structure first before you start hammering on it with sentiment. Yes. And I, I should note as well that this is an analysis of media articles from 16 different newspapers in the UK, not social media. And this is where you know, our presumption is that there's some editorial process going on. Uh, and they're writing within a field. You know? They are sort of professionals, uh, depending on how you <laughs> look at it. <laughs> Whereas you know, if you were to do an analysis of social media, you, you don't have these these other expectations that allow you to make certain assumptions necessarily. So, oh yeah, the other thing I wanted to say is the other neat thing about capturing sentiment information uh, at the sentence level is because that's the basis of how we form the network ties, then network ties have two attributes. They have weight in terms of how often uh, concepts appear together, but we also have uh, sentiment information which is to say when two concepts are appearing together, we can get the average sentiment of how they appear together within a network form. Um, I thought that was really cool when we first discovered that. But <laughs> um, so this is the process here. So we have raw text, we tag it, we find noun phrases, and then we can start to get at uh, network centrality and sentiment. So now that that's out of the way, um, why we're doing this, uh, we're really trying to get at ultimately causal explanations. But I think this is one of the big issues uh, with, with dealing in, in this project and why ultimately I've been kind of become a big data person. <laughs> I was asked to write an article for the journal Big Data and Society uh, in the spring. To, and they, they wanted me to write a piece on how to establish uh, ontologies within text. And you know, that has a lot to do with what we're trying to deal with here, which is to say we've got this huge raw text corpus. Um, and you know, we are spending a lot of time reading the texts, but ultimately we can't deal with the scale of text. So in order to, to ask causal questions, uh, we need to sort of 
get a representation that simplifies it sufficiently that we, we can then start to feed it into a counterfactual framework and, and get at causal questions. Um, and so just getting into some description here about uh, the scandal, I want to tell you about one um, MP named uh, Douglas Hogg. Um, he was the Viscount of Hailsham, um, Oxford graduate. Um, his house, Kettlethorpe Hall, uh, is a 13th century home. Um, he made the mistake of claiming for a moat. Uh, if you look at the picture, it's not really a moat. It's kind of a small uh, garden ditch. But he was the first politician to step down. Um, the Telegraph, this is the article that focused on him. Um, this was his, his defense on his Facebook page. I actually wrote him a letter with the help of my colleagues in the Center of Corporate Reputation. I wrote him a letter about six months ago asking him <laughs> to join our symposium. Uh, he politely declined, but <laughs> he maintains his innocence to this day. And what's really interesting, uh, and this is why media framing is, is at the heart of what we're trying to do here. Um, in the book that the editors of The Telegraph wrote, they actually admitted that if Hogg had just called it a drainage ditch instead of a moat, he would have got away with it. It has everything to do with framing. And so, um, to your point about some of the nasty potential things that could be said in headlines, if you look at what some of the headlines that people were writing about him, uh, it's your, your guide to moat couture. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's a lot of framing going on here. And so if we think back to this original question of why is it not this rational process of those who committed the worst crimes are being punished the most? And the proposition we have is that it's all about the ability for a newspaper to come, or newspapers, to categorize, to come up with this common sense of, of what a bad MP was, what the prototype of a bad MP was. And so this is an example of within the first month, we uh, did a concept network of all of the articles. Um, and then we took the, the node for Douglas Hogg. Uh, now keep in mind, all of the variations on his name have been collapsed into that one. So all of the ties to other nodes are being carried within there. And so it's fascinating when you look at this and you see, well, the strongest tie is the moat. You know? Uh, then we have, um, there's this other, where is it? Uh, Kettlethorpe Hall, Country Estates, uh, Sleaford is where he is, Profumo, there it is. Is anybody here familiar with the Profumo scandal, sex scandal from the 1970s, was it? 60s, I believe in that. So when you think about the way that newspapers are, are writing uh, and making sense of things, they're drawing upon previous things, they're trying to bring it into this meaning structure. but. They, of course, have to answer ultimately to readers and say what is going to resonate. And so when we do an event history analysis, and this is where the causal questions come in, um, we're trying to get at questions not only of what is, is resonating in the sense of what ultimately is getting embedded, but we're also trying to get at a sense of looking at survival analysis of MPs who, who resign. Um, we do an analysis uh, on a five-day lag, looking at all articles written about them, and then we do this for every day within the scandal period uh, up until when they potentially resign. And so th this is, I think, some really exciting results that we show that their centrality is highly significant. And the number of articles they're mentioned in is not. 
So you would think the number of articles that you're mentioned in leading up to when you are going to potentially resign should have an impact on your hazard, but it doesn't. Centrality does. Negative sentiment does. And whether that we have an interaction between whether you claim for leg and whether you have uh, honors, or whether leg asks you to pay money back and whether you're honored. Um, and so this is really exciting because we have this, this causal analysis that is able to show that centrality matters. But of course, in explaining that, the mechanism of talking about embeddedness you know, is, is probably one step of the way there. Um, you know, as I was saying earlier with uh, the work of Porak, Maggio, and Kennedy talking a lot about markets, um, you know, their, their studies were looking at firms and the, the survival of firms as it relates to whether the media mentions them in a central way, but we're trying to get at something a little bit different. And so it's this grouping that we're really interested in. It's this categorization, this ontological status of this grouping that's enacted um, through this media article. So the next steps we have are, we want to predict centrality and sentiment. Uh, we want to predict these things. We want to further unpack. We want to move into some media framing analysis. Um, and I just want to show you a little bit of the, the work that, that we're currently doing. Um, how am I doing on time? All right, so when we, when we think about mapping out a full month worth of scandal articles, it's kind of big. It's really hard to, to get at this. And when we look at the degree distribution, we really see that you know, there are a few nodes that are really dominating here. And so um, one of the things we're working with and one of the technical contributions uh, we want to make in this paper is using um, an optimization algorithm, the network's people in the room will know about this, called uh, Maximum Spanning Tree. Um, is trying to, you're looking, a variation on a minimum spanning tree. No, 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 that's, that's, that's fine. You just said, you actually said maximum spanning tree, and I was confused because I had never heard of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. And then I looked at the slide and realized that you meant minimum. And no, it's, it's actually maximum. So, oh, okay. a minimum spanning tree is an algorithm that network scientists use to help solve the NP complete problem of the traveling salesman problem which is to say, if you have to stop off in every city, what's the path that would be the cheapest way to go? Um, and so we do a variation on that, and we say, well, because we want to find the concepts that are really the frame that's holding the whole thing together, then we're looking for the most expensive route that connects all uh, paths. And this is a function of, of collective memory. Um, again, I don't want to get too much into the technical details of it, but I do want to show you that uh, it allows us to simplify the graph. And it allows us to, first of all, get at what the backbone of, of uh, scandal uh, coverage really is. And then we can get at some of these subclusters. And these subclusters, and I just have a little video that shows you, there you go, um, that some of these subclusters are about certain MPs. So you see Shahid Malik was the justice minister who claimed for a big screen TV. He has this really unique cluster, and you're able to see this when you run an optimization algorithm. Uh, then we have Douglas Hogg in the moat, uh, and then we have you know, this really central core common narrative there. And we focus on the, this is a bit later on in the scandal, uh, when we look at uh, Douglas Hogg again, he's really connected to the moat. But at this point, he's also really connected to Sir Peter Vigors. Does that name sound familiar to anybody? He was the one who claimed for the duck house. 
Yes. This is his duck house. <laughs> and the whole point here is that these became notable expense claims. But how were they linked? How were they linked except that the media was bringing them together? Sure, they were both Tories. Sure, they were both uh, older gentlemen. Um, but what they were claiming for didn't cost even close to what some of the, the other MPs who got away with it were. So there were relatively low cost around the mean um, expenses, but they became really uh, commonly linked so that when people, when I ask people, you know, just off the cuff, what are the top five things that come to their minds uh, with respect to the scandal? Um, most people tell me either the moat, the duck house, or both. <laughs> and why are they linked? Why were they so iconic? And so this is what we're trying to get at now. And so when we, when we look at these clusters, uh, we have this really interesting way now using this, this method of finding you know, a particular cluster that was found in one week, a cluster that was found in another, um, and they're vectors. They're vectors of words that have a particular centrality score to them. And then we can compare clusters. Um, this is the, the metric that we're using. Um, but once we compare clusters, um, we can do really fun things like this. Um, this is an alluvial diagram. This is looking at clusters in one week and clusters in another. And I think it's super cool. You can start to see, first of all, what are the clusters that are pretty consistent throughout? But then you can start to see um, how clusters are constituted through other clusters previously. You can really see the assembly of this narrative through a method like this. And this is what we're ultimately trying to get at with trying to talk about a meaning structure. And so when we think about what we're doing with this, this clustering, um, we have this superstructure that's linking everything together, which it would be the really dense uh, core in some of those larger networks that I showed you. But once you peel those away, then you start to get at these substructures, these topical clusters. And we believe that they probably have a really strong impact on the collective memory. And so the next steps in this analysis are to try to bring reputation into it and say, well, if a reputation is like a meaning structure, then maybe uh, the coming together of the hog and the vigors has a lot to do with their previous coverage and the reputation around them. There's a certain salience between them. Or maybe also sentiment is uh, playing a really important part of this story. And so I just want to sort of leave you off with, in talking about uh, prototypes, and get at, getting at what is the prototype? Is it a person? Is it what they claimed for? Is it some tie between them? Does it have to do with some sort of criteria of reputation? Um, I want you to think about this musical <laughs> that was in the West End last year. It was called The Duck House. It was, yes, it was objectifying these MPs, but from an academic perspective, what we're really trying to get at here is how collective memory forms as a result of the media. And so when we think about sense-making, um, Carl Weick, the famous uh, psychologist, talked about how sense-making uh, uh, was really based on a basic unit of meaning, which is to say uh, you have a cue, a relation, and a frame. And frames, once they, they get established, activate a particular action. And so what I think is really exciting about our project, and I hope you agree, is that the framing process that's going on by the media is helping to categorize. It's helping to come up with a uh, reputational criteria for why certain MPs were guilty. 
and it didn't necessarily have to do with a rational process of what or how much money they, they claimed for. Um, and status is a part of it, but you know, there's, there's a lot more uh, going on here. And so I think this is exciting for other management research uh, uh, problems. Um, you know, what we're doing here is effectively measuring um, social cognition, uh, and we're using an inductive approach, which eventually can be brought into a deductive approach, so it has two and one. Um, I have uh, several projects uh, on the go using some of these, uh, these methods. In particular, one of the things I'm really interested in is measuring rumors, rumors as expectations that could form the basis of new markets. If you think about collective expectations, uh, cohering, this is something that a lot of people have talked about, but it's been really hard to measure. And so um, the just final thing I want to leave you with is that Ken Okamura, sitting in the back of it, uh, have a project where we're looking at reputation of judges as it pertains to how they are mentioned within cases. And so this is, an, I think, a really exciting application of this in that judges don't have ranking systems of reputations, but we theorize that judges have a reputation for something with some people, and so we hope that this method, using natural language processing, can help us get at that. So thank you very much.